Certain information set forth in this podcast may contain forward-looking information under applicable securities laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. Solberry Trout and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in this podcast if circumstances or management's estimates or opinions should change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell securities and does not constitute an investment advice. My name is Neil Canavan. I'm the scientific advisor to Solberry Trout, and this is the latest edition of Name Tag a podcast series that introduces healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, I'm speaking with Brandy Roberts. She is the CFO of Lineage Cell Therapeutics. Brandy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Neil. Happy to be here. First things first, uh, for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with Lineage, let's start with the elevator pitch. Brandy, here's the challenge, 60 seconds or less. When was Lineage founded? Where are you headquartered? And what kind of science do you do there? Sure, happy to start there. So Lineage has been around for quite a while. We were founded in 1990 and we're headquartered in Carlsbad, California, which is just north of San Diego. Um, nice and beautiful, beautiful, sunny place to be. Sometimes we forget it's winter here, but uh, it's a lovely place to be. And we have a pluripotent stem cell technology, uh, which lets us work in three main indications. So we have three clinical programs ongoing right now. These are all intended to treat serious medical conditions. They all have significant commercial opportunities and they're all based on a very large comprehensive patent portfolio, uh, which helps us uh, you know, move forward with those programs. All right, um, now before we get started, I just wanna mention for the listeners that uh, this is the second executive from Lineage that I've had the uh, pleasure of speaking with. I also spoke with Lineage CEO, Brian Colley recently. Uh, and that interview is archived on SoundCloud under the keywords uh, Trout Talks and Lineage. Now, Brandy, let's find out a bit more about you. First, your training. You got an undergrad in finance in the heart of the Sun Belt, being the University of Arizona, Tucson. So first question, I grew up in New Mexico. Uh, are you a Wildcats fan? I am absolutely a Wildcats fan. My, uh, my whole family knows uh, we, we root for Arizona. Okay, well, they used to beat New Mexico teams all the time, so boo. <laughs> now, yeah, well, okay. So now uh, you got a degree in finance. I, I'm terrible at math. I always was. And it always fascinates me that somebody deliberately would pursue it. So uh, what was the appeal for you uh, those years ago? So I really like math. I like, uh, I like where everything gets to balance. And I took my first accounting class in high school. And... Um, you know, it was, uh, I hate to date myself a little bit, but it was back when we did everything on paper and all of your debits no. had to match up. And uh, I really thought it was interesting, but I actually thought I would become a tax attorney. So my idea was that I was going to study accounting and that I would later go to law school and become a tax attorney. All right. So you did get the accounting gig because out of school, you signed off with Price Waterhouse and you were there for three years. And, uh, you also managed to stay in the sun because it, that gig was in San Diego. So well done on that. Now from number crunching at Price Waterhouse, you moved on to this little German startup uh, called uh, Pfizer. 
Uh, you were a director of finance there. And that went on for seven years, a little over seven years. And again, San Diego, good job. Um, but I do have two questions related to that. Was this your, your first entrance in the healthcare sector? This was planned or this was just came up as part of your job search? So one of the amazing things about starting a career in public accounting is that you get to see so many different industries. So I was um, you know, blessed to work on many different clients. I worked on Qualcomm, I worked on WD-40, and I worked on a little company called Aguron. And it gave me the opportunity to see what different companies did and to see what I might be interested in. And this was back in the day when companies could come to you and say, would you be interested in coming to work for me? And uh, Aguron did that. They said, you know, we've loved having you be on our audit team. You know, would you consider coming over to be our accounting manager? And uh, I thought it was, I thought it was a really interesting opportunity. I wanted to learn more about um, instead of auditing a company, how to work inside of a company and how that accounting works. And so I made that jump into Aguron and uh, we got bought by Warner Lambert a year later. And a year later, we got bought by Pfizer and I became part of the Pfizer family. And uh, it was an amazing entry into drug development and learning a ton about how to develop drugs from you know one of the biggest companies in the world. You know, this reminds me, I had some kid ask me recently, like, how do I get to do what you do? And I'm like, you couldn't possibly recreate my journey. It just doesn't happen. So this sounds sort of familiar. Now, all right, director of finance is Pfizer. That, that's kind of a broad term. Uh, give me a snapshot of your responsibilities there. Yeah, so I was the head of R&D finance. So um, when I started at Aguron, obviously I was an accounting manager for a public company, but when we became part of Pfizer, we became one of the largest divisions of Pfizer's um, R&D headquarters. And so uh, we, we basically had four sites, our La Jolla site, uh, we had one in Connecticut, we had one in Michigan, and we had one in the UK. And I was the head of finance for our R&D facility in La Jolla. We had about a thousand employees, I managed about a $400 million budget. And my job was to keep Pfizer R&D updated on our progress, make sure we kept to that budget, uh, we managed any programs that we were running. So things like if we wanted to have a vivarium or if we wanted to change indications, uh, if we wanted to forecast out um, our programs and what programs we should be focusing on in the future, all of those things ran through the finance department. Wow, cool. And perhaps the coolest part I heard about that was La Jolla. How far were you from, how far were you from the cove? Oh, uh, a mile. Oh man, do you dive? <laughs> no. Oh, oh. All right. Anyway, uh, so so back back to uh, reality here. So um, in the midst of all that, Pfizer was good enough to pay for your MBA. Uh, that was the University of San Diego, circa 2005. And shortly thereafter, you started climbing the corporate ladder at various healthcare concerns. <clears throat> some I know, some I don't. Um, the first was Strategene. I certainly know them. Uh, after that was a medtech company called Arts Medical then Inventrix Pharmaceutical. And this one's a little confusing for me. Uh, my first question related to that is, this is where you met uh, Lenny, CEO, Brian Cullen? That is correct. Yes, that is where mm -hmm. I first met him. Okay, so apparently you guys hit it off. So you were there for a year, uh, and this is 2009 now. You left that company, uh, Inventrix, to work for another healthcare company that had a neurologic focus. And we're gonna return to that in, in a bit. 
You were two years there, then back to Adventrix, which is now called MAST. Uh, so how about, did that happen? And this yeah. is your first CEFO role, by the way. That's correct. My first CFO role was at MAST. Um, I had worked there briefly when it was Adventrix uh, in the 2008-2009 timeframe. And at that point, um, Adventrix was working on some cancer reformulation drugs. And if you remember, 2008-2009 uh, were tough times. It was really hard to raise yeah. money at that point. And uh, a previous CFO that I had worked with at Artis had landed at AlphaTech and said, would you like to help me come run accounting at AlphaTech's fine. You know, I need a VP of accounting who can know all of the ins and outs and run this organization for me. Uh, you know, they had revenue and ongoing trials. Uh, so I went to AlphaTech for a couple of years. At that point, uh, at that point, Brian and um, another executive at Adventrix had found a new program to license in related to sickle cell disease. So they called me and said, we're essentially kind of restarting the company. We're not gonna do these reformulated cancer programs anymore. We're gonna focus on sickle cell and we need a head of finance. And I said, that sounds really, really interesting to me. It sounds like I could be part of building something, uh, but I wanna be CFO someday. I don't wanna be a VP anymore. So how do I become a CFO? And they said, you need to have investor relations experience. And I said, then take me to New oh. York, here we go. Uh, and, and I was on my way and I got promoted about 18 months later to CFO. Okay, good. Um, now, in this role, was this your first experience directly working with healthcare investors? It was. It was the, the first time where I had, you know, in, been really part of all of our investor meetings, going out and not only going to New York, but being on the phone, talking to people um, all across the U.S. And, and sometimes in Europe as well. Now, I can tell you that New Yorkers are a, a different breed. Are our healthcare investors a different breed? So by this time, you've probably dealt with generalists, you've dealt with people who have PhDs, you've dealt with people who may not have a science background at all. I, is this, is there a special skill set to talking to healthcare investors? Well, I think every, I mean, every investor is a little bit different. And so I think what you need to do is you need to be in tune as to what people are looking for. And, and MAST was a really interesting place to be because when we started in sickle cell disease, no one knew about sickle cell. We would go out to investors and we would start to talk about it. And people were like, we don't even, this was in 2011, like we don't even know about sickle cell disease. Nobody else is working in sickle cell disease. What is this? Why should we be interested in it? And um, Brian had the idea to actually start our own investor conference related to sickle cell disease. And we did that. We did that in New York and we pulled it together and we invited, you know, KOLs and patients. And uh, as the years progressed, our competitors and others working in sickle cell so that we could have a forum for investors to come and learn about sickle cell and be part of the community. And it's really changed now. I mean, you know, Global Blood is approved for a product in sickle cell um, and there are multiple companies working in it today. So it was really good uh, to be part of that and to think about how to get investors you know, more information on what we were doing. It's interesting. I know sometimes, it, well, it's, it's, you know, how do you read a room, right? It's like, okay, am I, this person, at what level am I, am I aiming this conversation? And that's a real skill. I, as, certainly as a journalist, I, I have to do that all the time. 
Well, that's now, one of the um, things that I was just going to say. That's one of the things that I really like about working with Brian too, because he has a scientific background, and I obviously have a finance background. And I think we both bring interesting perspectives when we go in to talk to investors, and it's it's good to tag team it. Okay. Now, um, following Mass, there was a couple more positions at the CFO chair, so lots more experience there. Uh, a couple more healthcare-focused companies, always healthcare. And then you finally rejoined forces uh, with Brian at Lineage. Now, before we discuss the assets of the company directly, uh, I have two more questions about you and your motivation. The first one uh, is more general, which is to date, in looking at your CV, the company you worked by far the most for was Pfizer over seven years. Pfizer's been around a long time, 170 years. They're not going anywhere. Um, you left the security of that for a string of relatively new companies. And if, I, I don't think it's too out of the, I can mention that you have a family. Yes. So, so you left the secure situation to, to do all these smaller things. Why? I mean, I know you wanted to stay in Southern California and I respect that, but yeah, how did that work? So Pfizer was amazing. It was an amazing place to get your drug development training and learn about, uh, you know, like you could see everything kind of from soup to nuts at Pfizer. But what Pfizer didn't give me was the ability to make decisions. So even though I ran, you know, a $400 million budget, if I came in 10% above or 10% below, you know, that's a rounding error for Pfizer. You know, they run, you know, a 5 billion plus budget in R&D. So, for me, I really wanted to be part of a company where I could be part of the strategic team. I wanted to be on the executive team. I wanted to be making decisions about how we would progress the company. And to do that, I really needed to be at a smaller company. Got it, got it. So now lineage. So let's, uh, let's talk directly about your products. Uh, take us through a high altitude tour of your lead assets. There are three of them I'd like to touch on. Um, the first is operation. So tell me about that. How does it work and uh, what's the latest news there? Yeah, so Operagen is our retinal pigment epithelium transplant therapy. So that's fancy words for telling you it's retinal cells. So we can make new retinal cells and we use that to study dry AMD, which is dry age-related macular degeneration. It's one of the leading causes of blindness in the world and there's currently no therapies for it. And, and one of the reasons for that is nobody really understands quite why people get it. And so our theory is we'll just make new retinal cells and we'll transplant them in. And hopefully that helps get you some, some vision back. Um, we recently finished enrollment in that study. There was a 24 patient phase one, two A. And so we were really excited to get that done, especially during a COVID pandemic where enrollment was a little bit of a challenge. Uh, but we announced uh, just about three weeks ago that we finished enrollment there. And we also presented some new data at AAO, which is showing that we're still seeing some uh, better visual acuity in some of our patients. And we saw the first ever known case of retinal restoration. Uh, this is where we've actually seen tissue be regenerated. Uh, we saw it first at nine months and at AAO, we've seen it persist through 23 months. So that's really, really interesting for us. And we want to try to see that again in different patients. Okay, I, I hadn't actually heard that before. And I, I covered this space way back with well, Lucentis and wet AMD. And the goal there was never to fix, it was to stall. Correct. And, 
Yeah, so this is, this is, this is good news. Um, when I talked to Brian uh, a little while ago, he mentioned partnership opportunities for this asset. Uh, is that still on the table? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we want to do the right thing for the asset and the right thing for our shareholders. So I think it absolutely makes sense for us to continue our conversations with partners and see what people can bring to the table. And then you decide what makes the most amount of sense. You know, does it make sense to continue the development with a partner or should we go it on our right. own? And what does that look like? Okay. Uh, second asset I want to talk about is OPC1. And this uh, harkens back to your experience in, in neurology. So what's, what's the mechanism here and, and where are we in development? Yeah, so for similar to what we do with Oprogen and how we can make retinal cells, we can also make special spinal cord cells. They're called oligodendrocytes. And those can be used uh, in patients that have acute spinal cord injuries. And so where there's been an injury, um, sometimes there's a cavitation in the spine now, and we can put those new oligodendrocyte cells in that cavitation and hopefully get the nerves to start talking again and hopefully provide better motor function. So this is a program uh, that we brought in with the merger of Asterius uh, back in 2019. And that, that first study has been finished for a little while. It, the enrollment was done in about 25 patients in a phase one, two A. 96% of patients saw improved motor function. And what we've been doing now that we've had it is really working on enhancing the manufacturing for that so that that can go into a later stage clinical trial and hopefully get approved because there's really nothing for these patients uh, that get acute spinal cord injuries. I do want to touch on manufacturing in just a minute because there's sort of a unique aspect to that with lineage. Uh, but first I need to mention, you got an orphan drug designation for this asset. I I've never quite understood, I mean, I see this phrase all the time. What does this mean in practical terms for you? Yeah, so, you know, unfortunately there's about 18,000 spinal cord injuries in the US per year. But that, that counts as an orphan drug for the FDA. And when you get orphan drug designation, what that lets you do is you, it lets you have more frequent meetings with the FDA, lets you get in front of them a little bit faster um, than if you weren't an orphan drug. So it's helpful in, in those conversations. Um, is there anything uh, recent to share on this? Do you have any data coming out? Yeah, so we're actually, um, in, the, in about a week, we're probably gonna put out some information on our manufacturing improvements and okay. we're really excited about this because, you know, this is what will help us get back into the clinic for this compound. Okay, finally, uh, we're talking about an asset called VAC2. Uh, what's the mechanism here? This is an oncology asset, I think? Yeah, this is an oncology asset. We can make dendritic cells, similar to how we make retinal cells and oligodendrocytes. We can also make dendritic cells that can carry antigens and hopefully be helpful in fighting tumors. Uh, currently in a phase one clinical trial for non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, that's being run by the Cancer Research UK, which is the largest cancer charity in the world. Um, they had had ownership of this study previously, but we brought it in house in May because we saw how the first patients were doing and we thought it was really, really compelling work. Um, and so we brought it in house and are now working on kind of our plans for the future and what future clinical development looks like. Uh, you had some news related to this in October about preliminary results. Yeah, we, we put out some preliminary results for the first couple of patients. You know, we saw some really interesting immune responses in some of the patients to date. And so it really is encouraging uh, for future development. 
Okay, and what tumor type was it? I missed that part. It's uh, non-small cell lung cancer. Okay, good. Uh, now, of, of the three programs, uh, what data point do you expect to see first? Yeah, so we have a couple of key milestones coming up. So the first one is the, the update on our OPC1 program with those manufacturing improvements. And I think sometimes people think that manufacturing is not that exciting, like, like big whoop, uh, thanks for telling us you're manufacturing it. But in cell therapy, manufacturing is a big deal. Um, we control our own manufacturing. We have our own subsidiary in Israel, which is our center of excellence for our, our manufacturing for all three of our programs. And it's really important that you make these cells the same way every single time and that you make them in a way that will be helpful for clinicians and someday physicians in a commercial opportunity to be able to administer those cells as easily as possible. So that's why manufacturing is really important. So we're gonna have an update on our manufacturing for that. Um, we're also looking forward to treating the, the last two patients in the VAC2 clinical study. Hopefully that'll be done soon. And then uh, we have new data expected for these Aubrogen patients. We were actually able to dose five patients in five weeks uh, with Aubrogen when we finished in, in mid-November. And so we call those the November graduates, you know, so we're looking forward to three-month data on those patients and then six-month data on those patients because as we continue to follow those patients, we can see how they're doing in terms of visual acuity, how, how quickly their GAs are growing, how quickly we may have been able to slow them, et cetera. Uh, now, it's, it's certainly not uncommon for a company to have a manufacturing site that's nowhere near their headquarters, but Israel is a hell of a long flight. So, so, so how did that come about? Yeah, so Opergen was actually founded in Israel out of the um, Hadassah Medical Center. So that IP still lives in Israel, and it's part of our subsidiary, CellCure. Uh, which is uh, actually housed in Hadassah Medical Center. You're right, it's a really long flight. I've been there twice, um, but they're amazing people and they're really, really smart and they're really, really good at cell therapy. And so one of the reasons to bring in OPC1 and VAC and to put these three cell therapies in place was because we have that manufacturing center of excellence. And so it really gives us some synergies in terms of cost efficiencies when we look at you know, progressing all three of these programs forward. So given the prominence uh, in, in Israel, uh, I now need to know about the IP for these assets. Where is the IP? Yeah, so the IP uh, for Aubergine is in Israel, and then the IP mm -hmm. for OPC1 and VAC2 are both in the U.S. Okay. So finally, brass tax, let's talk about some money. We're doing this in preparation for J.P. Morgan, which will be held virtually about six weeks from now. And uh, I need to know a couple of things, which is uh, what's your runway right now? And what sort of conversations would you like to have during JP Morgan? Great. Yeah, so we had about $38 million of cash and marketable securities as of the end of September. We've been able to reduce our burn to about less than $5 million a quarter over the last couple of years as we've really right-sized the company. So that's been one of the important things for me coming in was really taking a look at our operating expenses and bringing those down. Um, so, the, you know, the old company, uh, the old companies of Lineage and Asteria spent about $43 million a year. You know, now we're looking at that being less than 20 a year. So that's been a big accomplishment for us. And when we look to JP Morgan, you know, what we're really doing is really trying to get the story about Lineage out. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of investors don't really know about us. 
Uh, we haven't done a traditional equity financing in over three years uh, because we've had some investments in some, in some companies. Uh, we've been able to sell those investments over time that have supported our operations. And now is the time where we're really getting out there and talking to investors about the future of lineage and these three clinical programs. And so really putting the word out and getting more people to understand what we're doing is our biggest goal for JP Morgan this year. Okay, great. Well, that's all I have for you, Brandy. Ladies and gentlemen, today I have been speaking with Brandy Roberts. She is the CFO of Lineage Therapeutics. Brandy, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. It's been great. Thanks so much, Neil. Appreciate it.